Every athlete needs to get in the right mood to perform, even equine ones. How about Se Ardire Esperanza, If You Dare and Hope? Sounds like a good inspirational tune, right? Well, that's one of the 70 or so arias written by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and a trainer in England actually sings to her horses. I smell my skin to find traces of you. We'll talk with trainer Heather Maine about this unique relaxation technique. Plus, what if you could detect a potentially serious virus in a horse in under 30 minutes? Could it stop an outbreak like the equine herpes virus that hit Louisiana last winter? A breakthrough may be coming. We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a hit bobbing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. You can download us at the iTunes Store. You can hear us at TuneIn.com or the TuneIn app. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Was the American Revolution actually American? And was it a revolution? Discuss. You've also heard the phrase, music soothes the savage beast. Well, horses are neither savage, nor do trainers want them to be completely soothed either. Totally soothed animals might not run fast. But we've heard several instances of music being used to make horses relax. Trainer Chad Summers plays early 2000s hip-hop for championship-level sprinter Mind Your Biscuits. Fat Joe is Biscuits' favorite artist, if you're scoring at home. Hip-hop, though, didn't grade out all that well in a study conducted at Hartbury College in Gloucester, England, about five years ago. A pair of researchers took eight thoroughbred geldings and played four different types of music for 30 minutes each for them. When the horses heard jazz and rock music... They displayed frequent stressful behavior like stamping, head tossing, snorting, and whinnying. But when the horses heard country music and classical, they didn't display any of those stressful behaviors, and with country music actually ate more quietly than even when there was silence. These days, there's a trainer in England who actually sings classical music to her horses in the afternoons after they work out in the morning. You said I will feel passion for you till the end of time. I'm strong, my thoughts like swallows dart about. Her name is Heather Maine, and she runs a small stable of about 16 or so horses in Wantage, England, a little southwest of Oxford. And her music is not a recording either. She sings to her horses every day. And we are fortunate to hear the mellifluous tones of trainer Heather Maine here on In The Gate. How did you wind up with two seemingly disparate loves like horses and music? I know. I know. I, I, think, uh, I think I'm probably the only trainer in the world that sings opera and trains racehorses. <laughs> I don't know. I could be wrong. But yes, I've always been kind of tugged one way or the other. 
And now I've kind of put the two together, and, and why not? Because music affects animals and horses just as much as it affects people, doesn't it? Well, I know a lot of trainers have talked about hearing the rhythm of their horses as they run, and that's one way they can diagnose what they're doing. And race car drivers will say the same thing, that their engines are off song, that they can hear yes. what's going on without even having to see it. I imagine that you must be the same way. Yeah, I train my horses from, from their back, So, because I was a jockey as well, an amateur jockey. I rode under rules here, and so I'm very lucky that I ride them as well, so I can feel, and like you say, the, the rhythm and feel how they're moving, and I know, it, it, obviously, I don't ride all my horses, but I'm riding up when I'm riding work. I ride up sides, and so I've got a real key to what's going on, and I, I can feel if they're in rhythm and feeling right, and if they're they're not. And so, yeah, so music is, is kind of, well, it's kind of part of everything, isn't it? Now, you've said that Mozart seems to be your horse's favorite, so you sing arias to them. How do they respond? Well, I mean, it might be my favorite. <laughs> I don't know, do I? <laughs> well, I, I started out just singing in the yard, rehearsing, because it has good acoustics. And then I realized that the horses are actually really interested. They weren't ignoring me. They'd, they put their, if, if they were eating away in the corner or whatever, they put their heads up over the door and come forward and put their ears and nod their heads. And they're definitely, definitely interested in the music. And I, I think they like it because they, they're not pinning their ears back and making a face. <laughs> so, but I mean, I don't know if it, if it helps with, with winners, but I have, I, I just had a winner, another winner. I've had, 14 runners this season, 13 of which have won. And I think I'm on a, like a individual runners to um, winners. Uh, I think it's a 59% ratio. So, and for every pound you put on my horses, you get 83 pounds back. So anyway, something's helping. But I think the music, I, and I sing to them in the afternoons, and I just think it helps them to relax. And when you're training really, well, you know, it's just a, a very hard regime any athlete and race horses especially and you're exercising hard in the morning and then the afternoon you need to just wind down don't you and i think it helps them to relax really well that's the thing you know on last week's show we had on a lady in california maria falgioni who gave up being an actress to put her body through the rigors of being a jockey what made you want to give up a similar career and performance to train horses oh I, well, it, it's just, it's a huge, huge challenge, isn't it? A huge physical challenge and mental challenge. And but, but actually also performing opera and performing classical music on stage is, is a huge physical and mental challenge as well. They're kind of similar in a, in a weird kind of way. But obviously I can't do both. I am a professionally trained singer, but I wouldn't have the time to do both. And so I chose to do to train the horses full time rather than perform full time, if you know what I mean. But I'm, I am still performing. Well, it is it's a bit crazy. I, I think jockeys are, and, and I'm not riding under rules anymore. I'm obviously riding my horses at home, getting them fit for the the professional jockeys to ride in the races. But I think they're incredibly brave, incredibly fit, strong people. So. So that was one of my ambitions, and, and I did it. I rode, rode under rules. I had 12 rides, and I won twice, once at Newmarket and once at Chepstow. 
And then, then I thought, okay, that's enough. It's time to be a trainer now. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the way, how extensive was your career, has it been, because you still do, as a performer? Oh, well, I trained with um, Paul Hamburger, who was Dame Ergard Siegfried's accompanist and Janet Baker's, and he, he was the world's, one of the world's experts on Mozart, and he was Austrian, and I was very, very lucky to train with him. He was my accompanist for about 10 years. This is in London, and, and I performed in some lovely places like the Barbican, the Royal Albert Hall, St. James's Piccadilly, Johnson Square. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I did have some sort of a, a career. I, I wouldn't say I was incredibly successful as a professional singer, but, but I did. I, I enjoyed what I did, yeah. Royal Albert Hall. Well, my father was a trumpet player growing up, and he used to ask his uh, teacher, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the guy said, practice. <laughs> practice, practice, practice. That wasn't exactly <laughs> the question my father was asking, but the answer made more sense. Yeah, yeah, cer certainly. So you can sing an entire Mozart aria by rote without looking at any music if you that's what you're doing while you're walking around the stable? Yes, yeah. And I sang in some operas when I lived in London and had to memor them, memorize them and, and they're still with me. And and I still I still perform um publicly from time to time as well. But yeah, so it helps me to remember it by walking around the stables and singing it and practicing, practicing it in front of the horses for when I do perform it. Uh, but, yeah, it's, um, it definitely keeps your brain active. <laughs> Can you give us an example of what you'd sing to them? relaxing for them, isn't it? But sometimes I sing faster arias. How can you not be blown away by that? The one and only trainer, Heather Main, joining us here on In The Gate. Now, obviously, you're not doing a strict study like the one that we mentioned in our open, but can you think of an example where one of your horses learned to relax a bit more in the mornings and the afternoons and thereby performed better than maybe he or she would have. Well, there's there's a video of me singing to we call him Alcout, but I think it's pronounced Alcout. He is a three-year-old gelding that we bought in the horses and training sale at Tattersalls and Newmarket in July. He was bought by a big Arab owner, I think it was Al Shakab, for four hundred and sixty thousand pounds as a yearling. And then he went to train, uh, he was trained by John Gosden, but we bought him unraced from the sales. And he's by Oasis Dream, he's got an absolutely gorgeous pedigree, beautiful gray horse, looks very Arab-looking head. But he's quite a nervy sort, um, really quite highly strung. And I think it's also helped because we're a smaller yard and it's not such a huge string. And we're kind of self-contained. We have a six-for-long polytrack gallop. And we're, we're in kind of farm, and so it's not really busy here. So that definitely helps him. But he's, he is quite highly strung, and he, he loves the singing in the afternoon, and, and, and it, do, it does help him to relax. But anyway, he, so he ran, he had his debut a few weeks ago in a three-year-old maiden, and he won. 
Uh, and he was very green, and, and the jockey said he did very well to win it because he was very green as his, it was his first run, but he won very easily. So I suppose that could be an example. But you, obviously you can't prove that it's helping, but you know he definitely needed some relaxing because you know how some horses are just a bit more, they're a bit more fiery than others, aren't they? I think that applies to people as well. Yes. <laughs> well, they they obviously have the same taste as I do. We have a rock pop station called Radio 1 here, and I just can't bear it being played in the yard because it makes me so nervous and fidgety. And Derek, who's worked on our farm for 59 years, he plays country music on the radio, and the horses just love it. So I can believe that. Um, it really relaxes them. Yeah, so they get double double dose. They get country music in the morning and then classical music in the afternoon here. <laughs> Wait, hold on a minute. Did you say that this guy has worked on that farm for 59 years? Isn't that incredible? And he's, so he's 78 years old now, and, uh, I mean, he, he mucks out. Sometimes he mucks out 10 horses. He drives the tractor. He hairs a gallop. He helps fix the fences. Amazing, isn't it? Well, now, you live in England, but you're originally from Alabama. I am, yes. Is there any chance of throwing in a little Blake Shelton or Kelsey Ballerini or maybe even Kenny Rogers in there? <laughs> I like Kenny Rogers, yeah. <laughs> but no, I don't I don't normally sing country music. I suppose I, I, I like Dolly Parton too. I can sing a bit of Dolly Parton. But I'm going home for Christmas as well. I'll get to go home to Alabama. Oh, very nice. Now your staple is not that large, between fifteen to twenty horses is what it seems to be. Yes. Yeah, at the moment we have 20 horses in. We're, we're probably going to have about 25 in shortly. So, no, it's not, it's not that big. And somewhere around 80 starts or so this year, give or take. By comparison, Richard Fahey has had 1,700 starts to lead the U.K. standings. So what are your goals as a trainer? Well, my goals are obviously to get as many winners as possible. I wouldn't mind. I would very much like to win a classic. And, yeah, just, just try to get the, the absolute best horses of it available and and get them winning the, the best races, Group 1, Group 2, Group 3 races. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to win a Classic. And I'd love to even maybe have some runners in America as well in Dubai. And I feel like I'm on my way. We've, we've, we're getting better and better horses in. And my husband's a vet, and he has a very good eye. And... Uh, well, it's obviously being the right place at the right time, but part of it is choosing the right horses, isn't it? So, yeah, I have um, lots of ambition, which you have to have in this game. It's pretty tough, isn't it? <laughs> One of the articles I read about you quoted someone described as an equine psychologist. I didn't know there were such people who summed up your story the best. And I'll just quote him. His name is Graham Frank. Instead of plagiarizing, mm -hmm. I'll just quote him. He said, this lady has found a remarkable formula that's doing well for her, and long may it last. I couldn't say it any better myself. Heather Bain, thank you so much and continued success with this marvelous, marvelous training method. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. It's great to talk to you. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, a potentially revolutionary new breakthrough that could cut down the diagnosing of viruses in horses and potentially save deadly outbreaks from happening. Don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. 
Some of us of a certain age lament how the younger generation that has grown up with mobile phones demands everything right now. It's got to be right now. If a web page doesn't load in three seconds, move on to the next thing. If you don't get something right the first time, it's not worth sticking with it. Instant gratification. That's what it's all about today. But before you become an old codger, as I am, think about this. Remember last winter, the outbreak of the equine herpes virus at the fairgrounds in New Orleans? One horse died, and around 40 more were left pretty vulnerable. Now, the main way to test for the EHV-1 virus is with a nasal swab, and that can typically take three to four days to get a result. In the case of the fairgrounds outbreak, the first horse showed symptoms around the December holidays, so the diagnosis and resulting quarantine both were delayed at a time when the disease was just starting to spread. Just before the Breeders' Cup earlier this month, we had trainer Tim Glyshaw on to say that the outbreak and quarantine devastated his operation so much, he strongly considered giving up his business altogether. It got that serious. But... What if that virus had been detected in under half an hour? How much of the spread of that virus might have been contained? The EHV-1 outbreak in New Orleans was the inspiration for a group of veterinarians and scientists led by Dr. David Nash in Lexington to develop a device that can test for certain highly infectious diseases in both horses and humans. The group calls its device the Path Tracker, and to talk about it, We welcome Dr. David Nash and Dr. David Hirschberg, who are part of this group. For our listeners who can't see this device and are trying to imagine it, what does it look like and how does it work? It's uh, approximately four by four inches in size. It's a cradle. It's designed to hold a smartphone. Uh, We use the smartphone for its camera and its computer. And inside of the cradle is is other pieces of the instrument. It uses a small computer chip called a microfluidic chip. It's mounted onto what looks like a credit card. It has a barcode on it. And so all of the tasks occur inside of the chip. And it takes about 25 to 30 minutes uh, to test for multiple diseases at the same time. So, as I understand it, these credit card chips are one-time use, not to be reused. Is that right? Yes, it makes a lot of sense because you're, you're putting the, the patient's biological sample onto the chip, and chips in today's world are relatively inexpensive. And so, the chips would be designed for specific diseases for specific symptoms. So, for example, fever of unknown origin... In this case, we chose the 10 most likely causes of viral or bacterial causes of respiratory disease in horses. And so in the future, we'd have other chips for other, uh, other disease symptoms. So what can the device test for and what can it not test for? Well, I can basically test for anything that has the building blocks of life, RNA or DNA, So that includes bacteria and uh, viruses. I'd say that's pretty uh, all-inclusive. So, David Hirschberg, give us a real-life, real-time scenario where this device gets implemented. What would that situation look like? Well, 
hopefully this would be a device that you could carry into the barn with you. So if you have, you know, basically as Dr. Nash is going through and doing his routines, he would be able to pull fluids from a horse, so either a nasal swab or a bronchial lavage, and, and add it to the chip and then insert the chip into the, the cradle, let the assay begin, and then read it out in the, in, yeah, by the phone. And then, of course, the phone would bring, would give timestamp, barcode stamp of the, the sample, and then also GPS locations and, and return that information to a centralized space. Well, what do you envision as the cost of buying and using the device? Uh, well, if once these are scaled, we'd like, I mean, I would, we would see the cost of these tests dropping to maybe five or even less, so a dollar a test uh, to run these tests. So then what kind of ballpark are we talking about in terms of the cost of this thing? Well, the device is really simply a cell phone and a 3D printed cradle with a little bit of, you know, heating elements in it. So really the cost of this could conceivably be, you know, not much more than the cost of a cell phone, maybe $100 more. Dr. David Nash and David Hirschberg are with us here on In the Gate. They've developed this device called the Path Tracker that can test for certain highly infectious diseases. Now, Dr. Nash, you're a veterinarian, not exactly an engineer. How did you figure out who the right people were to bring together to develop this device? Well, that's true. I'm an equine veterinarian, but I have uh, uh, substantial experience working in human biotech and the animal healthcare world. So I actually sought out these folks to work with because of their previous expertise in the areas needed to do this. Now, obviously, you knew you needed funding in order to make this work, a nearly $1 million grant over the next three years from the National Science Foundation. When you both developed and then applied for that grant, did you make it a priority to push the potential benefits for humans over and above the benefits for horses in order to sell the idea? Well, so this was done, again, with in, in collaboration with Dr. Brian Cunningham, who is a great engineer, and so he built it out. But I, I think really the strategy has been, um, I, my background is with human medicine. Um, the proof of concept for these, um, for these devices, though, the barriers are much better with animal models. And, and I can't think of a, I mean, uh, meeting uh, Dr. Nash was fortuitous because we solve a problem in his industry it's it's not an insignificant uh, area, you know, really millions of dollars at stake and, of course, incredible animals. And so if we can do it there, it's better to get it uh, right there before you pivot it towards humans. Right, but I have to think that the National Science Foundation doesn't award that many grants in the area of animal science. Well, NSF funds a lot of um, core capabilities, and it's not lost on the reviewers that this is going to be very much used for for humans. I mean, there's no reason why these are nucleic acid assays. And so the NSF funds a lot of studies that use basic animal models. I congratulate them on, on being able to bridge uh, this so far and, and really motivate uh, a number of people in the, in the industry to be able to go after this and solve this problem while still uh, making progress towards um, devices that will be used in human medicine. So, Dr. Nash, with that grant, do you owe the government anything, or 
do you simply take this product to market and go from there? Our responsibility is to do exactly what we did and to, with our best efforts and that of all of our partners, to try to go to market to help mankind and the animal health care field. There's many diseases that are first recognized in animals and through mutations and so on can later affect man. And the reviewers at the National Science Foundation recognize this. And so, therefore, this is an opportunity to raise both the standard of veterinary medicine and human medicine at the same time. And clearly, moving into the future, in all of human medicine, being able to diagnose a patient at the point of care of the patient, where the patient is located, whether it be man, food animals, companion animals, or in this case, horses, is obviously advantageous. In the face of uh, more serious diseases, Ebola virus outbreaks, etc., I think it's safe to say that these things never occur at a uh, place of convenience in time or location. So what's your timetable here? When are we going to see this device in action at racetracks across the country? Well, we're currently talking to uh, investors, venture capitalists, and such. Brian Cunningham, Dr. Cunningham at the University of Illinois, believes that if we are successful in finding our funding, uh, we could probably have this in the marketplace within the, in the next uh, year, which would coincide with the uh, conclusion of the grant. See, the instant gratification syndrome of today actually has some real-world benefits, not just watching cat videos. Not that there's anything wrong with watching cat videos. Dr. David Nash and David Hirschberg, thank you both so much for a few minutes and continued success with this device, which could see horses lead longer, happier lives as a result. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Our thanks to David Nash, David Hirschberg, and Heather Maine. This week, the Supreme Court listens to arguments about sports betting, which right now is restricted to three states. It seems a fait accompli it'll be legalized nationwide. What that means for racing makes for spirited debates. If betting on sports is allowed freely across the United States, will it help racing or siphon away all the biz? A rising tide can lift all boats. That's a common business idea, and sometimes that's really how it is. But I think there's a barrier here to keep Joe Sixpack from partaking in race betting alongside all the other sports. Learning the information needed to make informed decisions is tougher than for games played on fields or courts. It also doesn't help that one must pay for that information, which isn't the case for sports with sticks and balls. It would behoove the power brokers to make it easier for bettors to find racing for the long haul. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. You can get us at the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.